Good morning. Welcome. If you're new here among us, my name is Gene and I serve here at C3 Church as your lead pastor. When you were little, did your parents make you do chores? Do kids still do that today? My daughter's like, yes, I do. <laughs> the little things. What did you have to do? Like maybe taking out the trash. That was no fun. But maybe you had to make your bed. Did you have to make your bed first thing in the morning? Did your parents inspect it? You see, we give our children little responsibilities at first. It's all about getting the little things right. The basics. That is why in basic training in the Army, they make you do that. You're supposed to get all the little details right, whether it be polishing your shoes the right way, folding your clothes, keeping your locker neat, and making your bed. Starting off the day right. I heard an army officer once say, essentially the reasoning behind this is because if you can't even get those little things right, you are never going to get the big things. Right. It's all about the little things, the basics. Today we are continuing in our series, The Rest of the Story, where we're arriving at the book of First Samuel. Now, a lot of people don't know because most of us come here from a Protestant background. But if you're from another background, we're a non-denominational church, so everybody's welcome you may not see 1 Samuel in your Bible. It may say 1 Kingdoms. So 1, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, were once a set, one through four kingdoms. But today we're going to call it 1 Samuel, just in case you're a little confused. Today we will see another judge, actually a couple of different judges. So we did Ruth last week. It brought us to David, the bridge between the time of the judges and the time of more judges in 1 Samuel. Everything we're doing is leading to King David here. So we'll get there in a little bit. In the meantime, we have some things to talk about right here in the beginning of 1 Samuel, where it's kind of like this composite leader. There are different kinds of leaders leading up to the time of the kings. So you see prophets. You see priests, and then you see judges. Samuel is interesting. He's all three. And speaking of little things, what's cool about Samuel is that we get a lot of info about his early life, his childhood. That can be kind of rare in the Bible. Most of the time, they're focusing on what someone did in their adult life, some important accomplishments. But here, we see that Samuel does that very early on. The story actually begins with his parents. For Samuel 1.1, there was a man named Ilkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. Ilkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. It's not like Penini or Penini. Penina, Penina. Whatever. <laughs> so here, they'll also tell us that there are priests at the time, Hophni and 
Phineas. Now, Elkanah, he travels to Shiloh once a year to worship, and he brings his wives with him. But we're told that there's a rivalry between his wives, and this should be reminding us of Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah, arguments over kids. And in fact, this is a problem. Hannah's very upset. She cries often because she doesn't have kids, but Elkanah seems to dismiss it. It's like, why are you crying? Isn't having me better than having 10 sons? So we don't know how many sons Penina has, but perhaps it's 10 sons. We don't know. Moving on. She's upset about it. So upset that she can't enjoy any of this worship, the sacrifices. She doesn't even really want to eat. She's crying a lot about it. But when they go to worship, Hannah prays, and she makes a vow for Samuel 1.11. She made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. So this should remind you of something. Samson, remember? It's like a Nazarite vow. Some versions actually extend it a little and say, and he won't drink any wine, which would be just like a Nazarite vow, dedicating him to the Lord. Now, Hophni and Phinehas have a dad named Eli, and he's there. He sees her praying, and she looks like she's mumbling to herself, and he thinks she's drunk. <laughs> you shouldn't be getting drunk here. So he says, woman, throw away that wine. No good. And she says, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not drunk. I'm just praying. Oh, then in that case, may the God of Israel grant your request claims a blessing over her. So they go back to Ramah, and sure enough, she conceives a child. The prayer is answered. She names that son Samuel. I asked the Lord for him. It can be a little confusing. Most commentaries say that Samuel means God has heard, but there's some differing opinions. So the next year comes, so they're worshiping yearly, and now Hannah doesn't go. She says, I'm going to wait for the boy to be weaned. Okay, Elkanah goes. And then finally, the child is weaned. 1 Samuel 1.24, when the child, Samuel, was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. Now, we get to something quite significant here. It's interesting. It is another example of a woman in the Bible dictating Scripture. We've seen this before. Judges 5, Deborah's song, Moses' sister, Miriam. Well, here's another example. It's kind of long, but I want to read it to you because as I go through the rest of the story, it will tie a lot of things together if you're paying attention. She says this, 1 Samuel 2.1, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. 
No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who are starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. Important to pay attention to these prayers and these psalms, these songs of praise. So this is all about those who are lowly and little being lifted up in the Lord. And indeed, she was faithful with her little one. For Samuel 2.11, then Elkanah, and by extension family, returned home to Ramah without Samuel. They dedicated the boy there. And the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. So now the story transitions a little bit to Eli's sons, and we find out that they are wicked. There's more parallels here. If you remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, a similar thing is going on, but this is a repetitive thing. They aren't struck down quite yet for doing what they're doing. Basically, they are treating the Lord's offerings, the meat that is supposed to be sacrificed to the Lord, with contempt. They're sending a servant in with, it says, a three-pronged fork, and he's just taking whatever meat he wants, no matter what condition it's in. The priests were supposed to burn off all the fat. They're not supposed to eat that, but the servant doesn't care. He's just taking it and giving it to Eli's sons. But in contrast, Samuel remains quite faithful. He's growing up in the Lord, but in all of the little things, he's doing his chores, so to speak. And it says that every year, Hannah visits him when they go to do their sacrifices and their worship, and Hannah brings him a new coat every year as he outgrows the old ones, probably. Also, he wears a priestly garment of linen. That is so that they don't sweat and defile themselves or the offerings. And Eli blesses her. And she has five more children, three sons, two daughters. Now, Eli knows what his sons are doing. So he warns them, don't do that. He adds, we find out they're also seducing women. They're not great guys. He says, if a man sins against a man, well, someone can mediate or intercede. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede, he says. So again, they're taking these offerings, they're holding them in contempt. He tells them to stop, but he really doesn't do anything about it. It's just words. Well, Lord then sends a man of God, a prophet, to warn him. 
Boiling it down, he says, you give your sons more honor than you give me. To prove that what I'm saying is true, both of them will die on the same day. Your line will be cut off. You will be destitute, begging for food. You won't be able to do the things that you're doing right now. So we see some bad parenting in Eli. He still doesn't do anything. He's not faithful with his little ones. He's being instructive, but he is not following through. So 1 Samuel 3.1 says, Meanwhile, though, another contrast, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of the Lord. Suddenly, the Lord called out, Samuel, yes, Samuel replied, what is it? He got up and ran to Eli. Here I am, did you call me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back to bed. (laughs) So this cycle happens three times. Finally, Eli realizes, oh, that's the Lord. So he says, next time that happens, say, speak. Your servant is listening. And so he does. And when we get to 1 Samuel 3.11, it says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I am going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. So... Samuel says he goes back to bed. He gets up in the morning, but he's kind of afraid to tell Eli all this stuff. I wonder if he had to make his bed. It does not say. But Eli demands to know. And he says, may the Lord strike you dead if you don't tell me everything. So Samuel, maybe he's fearful, but he's faithful. And he tells Eli. And Eli's response is kind of strange, a little bit like Naomi's to Ruth, a little shorter than you'd expect it to be. He just says, it is the Lord's will. Let him do what he thinks is best. Okay. Well, 1 Samuel 3.19, as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba, the well of the oath, in the south knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle. And it says, and Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. But then, 1 Samuel 4, 1, a lot of people will break it up here. And we're going to see that it all connects. That's why it's important to keep going. At that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. The Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Then they said, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. There are two things at play here. The one, often the people of Israel, the Israelites would pay a corporate price for sins. So you could see it that way. They're paying a price for the sins of Eli's sons. But now 
they do something very bad, which a lot of people don't pick up on. They don't consult the Lord in this move. And what they're doing is kind of what some Christians do today. They're treating God like a genie in the bottle. No matter what the Lord's will is, we're just going to rub the lamp and we'll get what we want. And so that's what they're doing here. They're bringing the ark of the Lord. They've already lost, but now they're like, oh yeah, no, 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 no. He'll get this done for us. We'll just bring this thing out here. So they're not thinking of things rightly. It's the equivalent of trying to manipulate God. So the Israelites celebrate. They see the ark come into camp and they're shouting with joy so loudly that the Philistines hear it in their camp. Unlike Eli and his sons, the Philistines actually take it seriously. They're like, uh-oh, remember what their gods, there's a little plural in there, what their gods, but meaning God, they're talking about the Lord, did to the Egyptians. We don't want that to happen to us, essentially. So they're scared, and it motivates them. It has the opposite of the desired effect, so much so that now 30,000 Israelites die in the next round. And the ark is captured by the Philistines. So now, a Benjamite man enters the store. You may remember the tribe of Benjamin. And he's grieving. And to show that he is, they do this a lot in the Bible. I'll explain it because it can be confusing. He tears his clothes, not going to do that. And then he throws dust on his head, not going to do that either today. I have allergies. Anyway, so he's grieving. So if you see that in the Bible, that's what it means. They're showing their grief. He manages to escape the battle. He comes back. He runs into Eli. Eli wants to know what happened. He delivers the news. Your two sons are dead, and the ark of the Lord has been captured. When he hears this, it says he falls backwards out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. And adds a little something that some people don't like. We've discussed it at Bible study. It says he's overweight. And it's been brought to my attention that the PC version of that should be husky. I'm supposed to say he's husky, but that's okay. The Lord put this in there. The Lord put this in there. I didn't take it up with him. Go pray to God and deal with it yourself. Anyway, <laughs> he died. Or I can pastor you through it, maybe. I don't know. We've talked about it enough. Uh, he died. He judged Israel for 40 years. Then also, something else happens. <laughs> Phineas' wife, we don't get her name, she's pregnant but she dies in childbirth. This causes her grief. She hears the news. And everybody seems to be more concerned with the ark than anything else. If you're reading it carefully, that's sort of the surprising thing. So your husband's died. Yeah, I'm upset about that. But then it talks more about being upset about the ark. Same thing with Eli. He doesn't fall out of the chair until he hears about the ark. Now, something interesting. They name the child Ichabod. That's a weird name. Now, this is really funny. Down here in Southwest Florida, maybe it's because I'm getting old. I don't know. But I talk to people about it, especially younger people, and they've never heard the story. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Is that what it's called in the original version? Yeah, Sleepy Hollow. I lived near that town in New York. It's a Hudson River Valley town. And so maybe that's why the story was more popular. But it was a Disney cartoon. And if you remember the Disney cartoon, you remember Ichabod. 
Where is the glory, his name means. And so it's kind of funny if you know the Bible and you see this kind of gangly character with a giant Adam's apple walking around. He's kind of a goofy guy, not a very glorious character. But then didn't Tim Burton do a movie? And it was brought to my attention. Jane, that movie is old now. And it didn't make me feel good. So <laughs> anyway, Ichabod, where is the glory? If we keep reading 1 Samuel 5.1, after the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from the battleground of Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon, false god, and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen face to the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. So to an early reader of this story, it would be funny, actually, because Dagon had the lower half of his body was like a fish. It's almost like you can imagine a mermaid, and the upper body was like a man. And now it'll say that the strong hand of the Lord is against them and inflicted them with tumors. And so this contrasts what happens to the false god. It has no hands now, can't do that. And so you'll see this theme of the heavy hand or the strong hand of the Lord being against them. They get struck with a plague of tumors, and this should remind you of what happens to the Egyptians. What they're worried about happens, not tenfold like it happened to the Egyptians. And we'll see again, there's a little bit more fear and respect than Eli and sons or even the Egyptians do. So they say, what do we do with this thing? And so they move it to another town. They move it to Gath. Same thing happens. A lot of people die. They're inflicted with all these tumors. What do we do? We'll move it again. And it gets to Ekron, or it's on its way there, and they're like, keep it. <laughs> we don't want that to happen, but too late, they get inflicted. So finally, what do we do? 1 Samuel 6.1, the ark of the Lord remained in Philistine territory seven months in all. Then the Philistines called their, in their priests and diviners and asked them, what should we do about the ark of the Lord? Tell us how to return it to its own country. Send the ark of God of Israel back with a gift. They were told, send a guilt offering so the plague will stop. Then if you are healed, you'll know that it was the hand of the Lord that caused this plague. What sort of guilt offering should we send? Well, it's kind of strange, but it's symbolic. Five gold tumors and five gold mice. Two cows, they put it on a cart, and they're going to send it off. And again, it said, don't be stubborn like the Egyptians. Just do this. So... The tumors, the five gold tumors, are an offering representative of what they're stricken with. The mice, or rats, some people will say, remember that there are five kings, five towns. Remember, Samson, it's like that. And so maybe it's representative of them, they're rats, but probably more likely that this was the delivery vehicle for the plague. If you know anything about history, you know bubonic plague. This is how sometimes these things are spread. So they send it back, and sure enough, it arrives in a place, Beth Shemeth. House of the sun. The people are there harvesting wheat, and they see it coming, and at first they do everything right. All's good. They set up a stone there, they offer sacrifices, and the Levites, who are the only ones who are supposed to be handling the ark, handle the ark. 
all's good. But then <laughs> there are some people who look into the ark of the Lord. Most versions say that 70 men are killed because of this. But the Greek version of the Old Testament gives us a little more information. It says it's the sons of Jeconiah that do this. So again, problem with the disobedient kids. So they don't want it anymore either. And so they send notice to Kiriath Jerem, come and get it. And so this is what it says, 1 Samuel 7, 1. So the men of Kiriath Jerem came to get the ark of the Lord. They took it to the hillside home of Abinadab and ordained Eleazar, his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in Kiriath Jerem for a long time. 20 years in all, during that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. And indeed, it stays there, and we'll see a little later that David will eventually retrieve the ark. Now, Samuel says, if you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of your idols, like Dagon, get rid of all this stuff, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. And now, at Mizpah, he judges Israel. And if you remember, this is where the 400 troops gathered to decide what to do about Benjamin. He becomes Israel's judge there. Now Samuel, again, he's faithful in all the little things. So he's offering sacrifices. And as he is, the Philistines are approaching. And it says, remember Hannah's prayer? The Lord thundered against them, throwing them into a panic allowing the Israelites to defeat them. They set up a memorial stone, and there's another name. I said it a couple times, I think, this morning already. Ebenezer. You know that name? Remember the Christmas carol? Ebenezer Scrooge. And so the name is kind of ironic or foreshadowing. Stone of help. Yes, he's kind of like a stone. He's kind of cold, but he eventually helps. Another name in a movie or show that comes from the Bible. Come on, you guys know that story, right? I didn't hear anyone say yes. <laughs> I was confused. You're just soaking it in, right? <laughs> 1 Samuel 7:14. So it says, The Israelite villages near Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel, along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year he traveled around, setting up his court first at Bethel, house of God, then Gilgal and Mitzpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of these places. Then he would return to his home at Ramah and he would hear cases there too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. Samuel was faithful with little and given much. Now, I remarked earlier that it isn't common to get a whole lot about, well, a person's early life. Again, it's usually their accomplishments, the things that they do, the bigger things, not the little things that we're reading about, that people want to read about. But there's another person whose early life is also documented in the Bible, Jesus in fact, we see an account that is very similar to the account of Samuel and Hannah and Jesus' mother, Mary. Remarkably similar. In fact, there's an added person in it. So when you put the two together, you get a lot of similarities. If we begin in the first chapter of Luke, we will see that an angel appears to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, about Elizabeth. He says, you're going to have a kid. 
He doesn't believe it because they're old. So he makes it so that he can't speak. He's a mute. Eventually he has to write his name down. His name is John. Name him John. But if you know anything about John the Baptist, it's similar. He's basically like a Nazarite. Similar vows are taken. Then Gabriel, the angel, appears to Mary. A similar thing. But Mary's concern is a little bit different. She's actually maybe too young. I'm a virgin. How can I conceive? Ah, but you will by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. Well, let it be, essentially, she says, according to the Lord's will. She's very, very faithful. Well, she goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, who is now about six months pregnant. And when she does, she hears the sound of her voice. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the baby leaps in her womb, John the Baptist, before they're even born, recognizes the Lord and being in his presence. And she says, you are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. And Mary responded with another prayer. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down the princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remained remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors to Abraham and his children forever. Sound similar? Ah, Hannah's prayer is like a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled through Mary. So here's another woman dictating scripture to us. A woman praising God for her child. It's also about the little and the lowly being raised up by the Lord. Just as Hannah was faithful with her little one, so too, Mary was faithful with her little one, Jesus, and given much. If we keep reading Luke, we get to chapter 19. I know that's a long way. But we get to chapter 19 and we see another little one or man, Zacchaeus. And now I don't know what the PC word is, but he's height challenged. Am I allowed to say short? The Bible says short. Take it up with God if you are. Not on me. Anyway, <laughs> he's a short guy and he wants to see Jesus coming. So he climbs a sycamore fig tree to get a peek at Jesus. Jesus is coming. He approaches him. He says, come down, Zacchaeus. Calls him by name. Today, I'll be a guest in your home. So Jesus invites himself over for dinner. He's not always polite. Anyway, the people are criticizing. He's going to eat or be with a sinner, tax collectors. He's the chief tax collector in the region. He's rich, and so they didn't like these tax collectors at all. You're not supposed to charge your fellow Israelites interest, according to the law of Moses. So they don't have a good reputation, these people. But Zacchaeus says, Jesus, I'll give away half of everything that I own, and if I've cheated anyone... I'll give them back four times as much. Jesus says, salvation has come to your household this day. But 
We need to keep reading because Jesus is concerned that people are going to think the kingdom of heaven would appear immediately, it says in the Greek, immediately. Now, what's going on there? Well, Jesus came the first time to save us, right, as a sacrifice, to cleanse us of our sins, but he's coming back in full again to judge. A lot of people don't know that. Us even Christians. And he tells this parable. He says a nobleman, he's pointing to himself, a nobleman is going to go off to become made king to another place. But he has 10 servants. It's known as the parable of the 10 minas sometimes. Easy to read version, I'll say pounds of gold, 10 pounds of silver, sorry. And so he's going to go off to this other land to be made king. And there's a whole bunch of people, there's an entourage that don't want him to become king. These are the Israelites. He's going to put his servants in charge of this 10 pounds of gold or 10 minas to see what they do. Well, he comes back. He's crowned king and he comes back. What did you do, servants? Represents us. The first one, he does well. I invested it and made 10 times as much. So Jesus, he says this, Luke 19, 17. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. Some versions say slave. You have been faithful with the little I have entrusted you, so you'll be governor of 10 cities as your reward. Second servant, how'd you do? Ah, I invested it five times as much. Good, you'll be in charge now of five cities. Third servant, we're not going to get to all 10. He said, mm, sir, I know that you're a difficult man to deal with. You harvest what you don't plant. He says, well, if you knew I was like this, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? You'd make some interest. He hid it. It's uh, some under cloth version say, or buried it. He says, you wicked servant. Then he says this, Luke 19, 24. Then turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. The master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. We often overlook the simple tasks, looking for what we want to do, and overlook God appointments right in front of us. Or we steward the little things that we have poorly, like this one pound of silver. We aren't always faithful with the little things. Sometimes we overlook them, looking for bigger things. We overlook these little and very important things. We want all the big things, but are we faithful with the little that we've been given? And here's the question. If we aren't faithful with the little we've been given, why should God entrust us with much? If we're not getting the little things right, why should we be entrusted with the bigger things? Are we faithful in little, like Hannah, Samuel, and Mary? Are we like Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? We need to be faithful with little before expecting much. We need to get the basics right. And you see, it begins with our prayer life. It begins there. 
We need to do what we already know we should be doing, the basics. If we aren't doing that the right way, why should God trust us with anything else? And you see, I've learned something. Prayer is more about listening than it is about talking. We talk to God a lot, but do we listen? We should be listening, because he says a lot. You'd be surprised. Like Samuel, we need to listen and be faithful with what we're told to do. We need to be in the Word, not the world. You see, a lot of people don't think about it like this. They don't realize that you have God's instructions right in front of you. You have the instruction manual. So you need to start there first. We can develop a lot of opinions, can't we? I hear a lot of opinions all the time. I started thinking about the people that have opinions, and we were talking about it over the weekend, and I'm like, how do I explain to people when they give me all their opinions in a nice way that they're not in the Word enough to give me their opinion? How do I say that? I think I just did. But I think a nicer way would be something like this. So what's your favorite book? The Bible, right? They're going to tell a pastor that and lie. Anyway, you know, that's my favorite book. Oh, really? Wow. You know, like Harry Potter or something, I thought you'd say. And I bet in that book, you could tell me everything that happens. Right? Because you read the book and you saw the movie and you talk about it with your friends and you have the action figures, the cloak, you go to Universal, whatever it is. You know everything about that. That's your favorite book. But the Bible, oh, really then? Why don't you do this for me, if that's your favorite book? Simple, really simple. We don't need verse. We don't need chapter. Just name all of the books of the Bible. That's all, just list them. That should be really, really, really easy in your favorite book. Can you do that? No. Then don't tell me what it says. How about that? Simple. But it's right there in front of us with so many people. Oh, Lord, I want this. I need this. Make this happen. Do this. Do that. Constantly talking at him. But are we doing any listening? I don't know. But I find that it brings me a lot of peace. When I really submit, and I just get in the Word, and I listen to God and not the world, it brings me peace. It brings me the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the key to being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord's hand will fight for us. We don't have to do much, but listen, and then be faithful with what little we have. That submission is key to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is the key to everything else in our lives. So questions to ask yourself. Have you really died to your flesh? Like that song we sing. You see, because the flesh and the spirit, we're told in God's word, are always opposed to one another. They're fighting one another because they're opposites. Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we judge that? By the fruit we bear. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. Ooh, and we forget, self-control. 
It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's how we can tell if someone's in the Word. Or the fruits of the flesh, and that's how we can tell if someone's in the world. That's how we know. So we have to ask ourselves, are we filled with that? Are we reflecting that? Are we giving people that type of fruit? Are we bringing love and joy to every situation? It doesn't say, like, sometimes you just get to ignore Holy Spirit and do whatever you want. It's not in there. Trust me. No. Are we bringing joy? Are we peacemakers? Are we bringing peace to every situation? Are we bringing anger and anxiety because those are the fruits of the flesh? Rotten fruit. So here... And C3, this is why we value the Word of God. If it's your first time here today, you might have been thinking at a certain point, man, that's a lot of Scripture. Yeah, because I'd rather hear God's words than my opinion. How about that? Amen! So we value that here, and I just want to leave you with some encouragement, because a lot today. We did seven chapters of Samuel. And we've talked about it in Bible study, so I want to invite you. The Bible wasn't meant to be read verse by verse. The verse and chapter numbers were put in about 1,200 years later. It was meant to be understood the way you watch a Harry Potter movie. The whole thing. So you don't get it out of context. I made this encouragement at Bible study on Wednesday. You can post the verse of the day. But let's apply a little rule. Before you do, read the whole book. So the next time you want to post anything, I was talking about Philippians, just read all of Philippians before you post that verse out of context, 99% of the time. But be in the Word. And I want to encourage you, come to Bible study. It's where we go a little further. We dig deeper, both the Word and how it applies to us. Make that a priority. Make God's Word important to you. Take the time to listen. We try to make it easy. You're going to be told today how to download an app. And I put all the Bible study questions in that app. So you can review them. Go to lunch after church and talk about it with your friends. The Word of God says we should do that. We should be talking about it as we walk along with our children. So what's better for those of us who have little ones? What should we talk about? What should we bring into the house? What do you want them to hear? Do you want to pollute them with the world? Or should we be talking with our little ones about the Word of God? I think we know the answer. We need to be faithful with the basics so we can bear much fruit. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this church, everyone who came here today to hear your words, to be united together, bound together in the Holy Spirit, continue to be with us, throughout this service as we worship you more and stay with us as we leave the building because it's just a building. The church is your body, the body of Christ. And let us, I pray, represent you with good fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit this week to bring more people into your kingdom, the eternal kingdom that has no end. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.